Would you please uh, just stay standing with me as we read our uh, passage from Scripture this morning? We're starting in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 55. So it's 1 Samuel 17. Picking up from where we were uh, last week. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Please be seated. Thank you, Peter. Uh, this is the Word of God, and it has been a great joy for me to be able to get into this text as we take a look at the rise of David. Uh, most of us know something about David, and, and our goal in this series is to take a closer look at just who David is, and more importantly, how is it that God blesses him and uses him often in spite of himself and sometimes because of himself. Now, we're picking up today where we left off last week after that really epic scene that all of us are familiar with where David goes out onto the battlefield with no armor, with no sword, just himself with his shepherd's pouch with five smooth stones, with a stick in his hand, and with a sling. And we talked about last week how although David appears to be the underdog, in many ways he had the upper hand. He brought a gun, and Goliath brought a knife to this fight. Uh, add to that that Goliath is big and probably therefore strong, but also slow. Add to him all of the armor that he was wearing. Had David missed the first time, he has four more rocks. If he misses all five times, he can run away. The other thing about this is that David didn't have to get very close to Goliath. So it doesn't matter how armored Saul, uh, Goliath was. It doesn't matter how difficult it would have been to defeat Goliath in hand-to-hand -hand combat. David had no intention of doing so. And these are not just my own ideas. I, I mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. He's just one of many commentators. Not that uh, Gladwell, I think, is particularly coming from a Christian point of view. But there are many commentators that have made the same observation. So that David, in many ways, has the upper hand. What was most important to us last week was not this. The most important thing for us to notice last week was what David didn't wear and what he did wear. What he didn't take and what he did take. Uh, do, does anyone remember what David refused to put on? Saul's armor. Why? Well, in, on a practical level, it would have just slowed him down. So it would have nullified his advantage. But more than that, why does the writer tell us about this? And the way it's described, it's described very much like Goliath's armor. More than that, David is making a statement. I'm not going to be that kind of king. I am not going to be a Saul kind of king. Uh, additionally, he didn't want anyone to think that it was actually Saul on the battlefield killing Goliath so that Saul might have the opportunity to reap some of the glory. But what did David take out onto the battlefield? The sling. And what did we say was significant about the sling? 
There was a civil war in Israel that was in the recent memory of the people. And this was a civil war between Benjamin and the other tribes. This happens near the end of the book of Judges, Judges 20. And there were 700 Benjaminites from the city of Gibeah who went into battle with no sword but with a sling. And it was said that they could uh, hit the head on somebody from a great distance. So precise was their aim. Now, David is not a Benjaminite. David is not from Gibeah. David is from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah. That's going to come into play in today's sermon. But where is Saul from? He is from the tribe of Benjamin. And what town does he hail from in the tribe of Benjamin? Gibeah, the same place where these 700 slingers went into civil war against the other tribes. So what David does is he goes out onto the battlefield and says, I have Saul's weapon in my hand. Saul, O king, why did you not do what I am about to do? That's the message. And we ended last week by saying that David, for all the courage it would have required, for the faith that was clearly there, we didn't take a close look at the things that David said, but David went out there and he said, you come at me with all this armor, I come at you with the name of the Lord God of hosts. So there's a faith element there, but there's also something else happening, which is very evident if you are present. David stepped into Saul's social space. He did the very thing that that Saul should have done to defeat Goliath. And in so doing, he is making a claim to stand at the top, at the very pinnacle of the hierarchy of Israelite society. He's saying, I'm going to step into the position of Israel's champion where Saul once stood. That brings us up to date. Why don't we pray before we take a look at today's text, asking God to help us to see it with clarity for God's glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the way in which you have recorded this history. I pray that you would help us to see the way in which it informs our faith, that it informs our gospel, and that it will make a requirement of us This is not just a a story of something that happened long ago, but it it tells us something about who we are in Christ and how we ought to behave. So Lord, please make that clear to us as we take a look at this, your word. As Jonathan was knit to David, so knit us together. Build us up that we may defer to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. In his name we pray. Amen. At the end of chapter 17, we mentioned this last week as well, but just take a look at it. Verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, That's a temporal marker. We're we're told when this is happening. At the very moment that David stepped out without Saul's armor, sling in hand, stick in the other, that is the moment when Saul said to Abner, and Abner is the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Which tells us something. In uh, Hebrew narrative, and this is another thing that you want to note. Every week we want to talk about things to note. Uh, There's there's really a desire to move forward in the text. Very rarely do you get flashbacks. Everything is meant to unfold in chronological sequence. So, if you find at any time that something is out of chronological order, that's intentional. It's it's the narrator's way of emphasizing what is being written. Notice this. This is not in uh, sequential order. Therefore, it becomes really important. It, It means you have to ask the question, why? Is this put here out of order? And what is its significance for our understanding of the broader text? So this is out of order. David, previous in the chapter, had already killed Goliath, already chopped off his head, already gone to Jerusalem with the head. And now we have a flashback. And that flashback flows right into chapter 18. And what we see here is 
Saul has a eureka moment. Do you know what a eureka moment is? I believe the word eureka first happened when, I forget the name of the scientist. Maybe you can help me out. Do you know? Archimedes? Archimedes, okay. So he had a full bathtub, I believe, and he, he, it was full, and he, he put himself in it, and the water went over the bathtub. He says, Eureka! And he realized how he could measure the volume of something. The amount of water that is displaced is the volume of that which was put in. It's when you didn't realize something, and then you do realize something. And Saul has one of those moments. He, he's not really aware of what's going on until that moment when... David goes out onto the battlefield, and then all of a sudden, everything lines up, and he says, oh no, I've made a huge mistake. I have made a political miscalculation. And so Saul says to Abner, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, the way this is written, it's not just Saul asking that question of Abner, the commander of the army. It is also, because it's out of chronological sequence, it's also the writer asking that question of the reader. Because Abner says, you know what, Lord, uh, or O king, I don't know. I don't know whose son that is, but if you're the reader, you do know whose son it is. And what David tells Saul, which at the end here, I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite, we already know that. And we also already know that Jesse's family, who resides in Bethlehem, is from the tribe of Judah. And, and last week we did touch on this, but I want to go back to it because it is the most important subtext to this entire episode. And, and there is an expectation by the writer, the way things are written, that we will tune into this. This is running in the background and is absolutely required for an appropriate interpretation of this text. We answer the question that Saul asks to Abner. Whose son is this? Jesse from Bethlehem of Judah. Why is that important? Because the subtext, and I went to it last week, let's go to it again, Genesis 49. Just flip back to Genesis 49. This is extremely important for understanding the rise of David and his relationship with Saul. Moreover, it's extremely important for understanding his relationship with Jonathan, which is what we're really going to focus in on today. Now, what we have here in Genesis 49 is a, a series of blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. And these sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So these blessings are for the men themselves, but they also become significant for the tribes that come from each of these men. And so the, this is a section of Genesis that we often glaze over or skip through really quick, but it becomes really important for a right understanding of salvation history. So let's take a look and see what Jacob uh, said when he put his hands on Judah and filled with the Holy Spirit blessed him. This is in verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Pause there. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. What is that? Your brothers. This is about the man Judah, but it's also about the tribes. It means the other tribes are going to bow down to the tribe of Judah. Now, if you bow down to the tribe of Judah, it means something about, about the role of Judah. That is, that kings are going to come from Judah, no other tribe. We see that developed in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. This is the introduction of the lion of the tribe of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Picture this. There's a lion over the carcass of a dead animal. Let's say that that carcass is the kingdom. Because we don't want to think of It's not that it's dead. The carcass is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a positive thing. It's food. It's strength. 
So this dead animal is a good thing. It's the kingdom. And Judah is like a lion crouched over that animal. Who dares challenge him for that food? Translation, who dares challenge the tribe of Judah for the kingdom? That's what's being said here. It becomes even more clear what I've just said in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is that instrument uh, which is a symbol of kingly authority and power. So the lion is the king of the beast. The scepter is is, uh, a symbol of kingly authority. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is an astounding prophecy. Not only will Judah be the king over all of the other tribes, or the king will come from the tribe of Judah and reign over all of the tribes of Israel, but all of the nations will come and bow down to the king of Israel who is from the tribe of Judah. Now just fast forward to Jesus for a moment. Uh, when Pilate put over the cross, king of the Jews, it was meant as a slur, as a reason for his execution. This is a, a man of treason who dared defy Caesar. And, and the Pharisees didn't want it up there because they said, no, 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 take that down. And the Sadducees were appalled. He's not our king. And yet according to this in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and several other places in the Bible, the king of the Jews is the king of the world. It was actually a statement of truth and a statement of worship. Come back into the text. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So he's a, he's, this is a picture of health and of authority, but you get just a hint at the sacrifice that will be required of Judah in order to take his rightful place at the head of Israel and the head of the nations. Now, go over to verse 27. If Judah is a lion, if the scepter is in the hand of Judah, if, if Judah is crouched over the carcass, the prey, the kingdom, And who dares challenge him? Take a look in contrast to that, to what is said of Benjamin in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So so the picture here is of a wolf. A wolf goes out and gets for himself an animal of the prey. And it's good. Again, the, the prey is a good thing. It's a source of strength. It's food. It's the kingdom. In the morning, he has the prey. But unlike who will rouse the lion who is crouched over the prey, by the evening, others have challenged the wolf for the spoil, for the prey, for the kingdom, and he has to divvy it out to others. And who do you think will be the one to challenge the wolf? The lion. And when the lion takes the prey that the wolf had caught in the morning, who dares rouse him that's the subtext now before you before we move on we have to acknowledge this Uh, David knew this scripture Saul knew this scripture Jonathan knew this scripture Uh, Israel knew this scripture it was written by Moses it was in circulation it was their Bible they knew this Abner whose son is this I don't know The thing is, just as we already know whose son David was, so did Saul. Because Saul had called for him from Jesse of Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. But Saul, it seems, hadn't been reading his Bible. And then it hits him. Oh no. What have I done? Letting this Bethlehemite go out with my sling to slay my giant. He's from the tribe of Judah. Add to this, and we're still in Saul's eureka moment, add to this, that David is Saul's neighbor to whom the Lord has given the kingdom. Just listen 
to the moment when the prophet Samuel rejected, in the name of God, Saul from being king. In this is, if you want to go there, you can, but I'm going to go very quickly. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, verses 25 to 28, this is uh, Samuel speaking to Saul because Saul had not obeyed the word of the Lord. Now Saul says, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Better than you. When we read that, we think that, oh, David was a better man, a more upright man, a more moral man. That may be the case, but I don't think it is. He is better suited, better fit. I think his uh, descendancy in the tribe of Judah is enough to fulfill that. He, he is better suited to fulfill the scriptures. He, he, he is a better fit for the prophecy of kingship. And all of a sudden, as David goes out onto the battlefield, Abner, whose son is this? Day, uh, I believe Saul is thinking about Genesis 49, and he's remembering the words of Samuel ringing in his ears. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor, a man who is better than you. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he's also going out with your sling to slay uh, the Philistine champion, which you ought to have done. Now, let's contextualize this scene. We've got inside Saul's thinking a little bit. Who's present in this scene? When, when Saul says to Abner, Abner, whose son is this youth? Well, we know that Saul is there. He has the most to lose. David is successful. Abner is there. Abner is the second in command. And so Saul might be saying, Abner, be aware this boy is from Judah. Got to deal with this. But there's somebody else that's there, which we don't see in chapter 17. But if this were a movie, you would see Saul and Abner speaking close, and David would be walking away from them toward Goliath in the background. And then as we go from chapter 17 to chapter 18, the camera would pan out, and behold, who's there? Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking, that is, after David came back with the head of Goliath in his hands, comes out, as soon as David finished speaking, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan is also there. So pause the story here. This is very significant. The way this has been assembled for us, and, and when you're reading the Bible, you, you really need to engage your imagination to picture the things that are being described. Picture the scene. The three most powerful men in Israel. The king, the crown prince, and the commander of the army, the general, are all standing together on the one side. And on the other side is this boy. He's a big boy. He could have worn Saul's armor. He has just killed Goliath, and he's standing on the other side, and in his hand is his trophy, the head of Goliath. That's the scene. Now consider the plot. David has just eclipsed Saul as Israel's champion. And we've gone over this in previous weeks. For 40 days, Goliath came forward and said, send me out your, your strongest. Send me out your best. Send me your champion. Send me out the one who will fight with me that should have been Saul. Now David has gone out and done what Saul should have done. And in so doing, we talked about this a lot last week, he publicly shamed the sitting king. 
and claim for himself Saul's position in Israelite society. And he did it with a sling, which we've already talked about today. Now remember the prophecy of Samuel to Saul. Samuel has told Saul that the Lord has rejected him and given the kingdom to his neighbor, who is better than he is. And and remember the more ancient prophecy of Genesis 49. Now, do you remember the scene? You've got three, king, crown prince, and general. Here you have David and the head of Goliath. Now draw a line in the sand. These three are from Benjamin. This one is from Judah. Will you stand with David? Or will you stand with these three? That's what's going on here in the story. The writer has written this in such a way to ask the question. It prompts the question to us, but also to those who are present in the scene. On which side of the line will you stand? Will you stand with David? Or will you stand with Saul and Jonathan and Abner? Now push play. The most remarkable thing happens in chapter 18, verse 1. Let's read it. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What's going on here? Are are we at the beginning of a totally different chapter? See, the, the chapter break doesn't help us in interpreting this because we have to understand this as directly related to what we just read at the end of chapter 17. This is not a new topic here. This is not uh, all of a sudden we're going to talk about the relationship between David and Saul, at least not directly. What's happening here is Jonathan leaves his father's side and Abner's side and crosses the line. And he says, you know what? I see the cards. They're all laid down. I know Genesis 49. I know his lineage. I know what Samuel said to my father. I'm not going to contest this. I'm not going to fight this. I am going to knit my soul to the soul of David. I'm going to let him rise. And his rise will be my rise. Because Jonathan has two options here, especially if we understand what David has just done to publicly shame Saul. Uh, It now falls to him. Saul has abdicated his position in Israelite society. Not formally, but informally. He's been publicly shamed. He did not stand up to David. So now it falls to Jonathan, and everyone is looking to Jonathan. Jonathan, what are you going to do? And Jonathan has two choices. He can challenge David or he can acquiesce to David. That's it. And everyone is waiting to see what the crown prince will do. Are you going to let this Bethlehemite boy take the kingdom or not? Do you see how that works politically? What does Saul do? So, There's a line drawn in the sand. You've got to stand on one side, with Benjamin or with Judah, with Saul or with David. Jonathan goes over to Judah, to David. What does Saul do? Verse 2. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. This is not just about an address change for David. This is not about being promoted, although we'll see that David does get promoted. This is about Saul trying to do damage control. If you have a promising rising star from the tribe of Judah, you do not let him go home. Why? If he goes home to Judah, he could just open to Genesis 49 and say, listen, it's time that we take what is rightfully ours. And he can gather all the people of Judah together. And he could stand up and he can preach to them from Genesis 49. And he says, I have the head of Goliath. I have just done what the king from Benjamin should have done. Now is our time. Now is our time to take the kingdom. We are the lion. He is the wolf. He may have had the kingdom in the morning, but we will take it in the evening. You see, that's a good sermon. And if I was David, that's what I might do if I go back to Bethlehem. And Saul says, over my dead body. He's more right than he knows. I will not let you go back 
and rally the tribe of Judah to your cause. And so you see here a contrast. Verse 1 and verse 2 show a contrast between, uh, in this scene, what's being demanded of all the people in the scene between what Jonathan does and what David, or, uh, Saul does. Jonathan says, I give, I fold, I'm with you. Saul says, no. I'm the king! And that's the rest of 1 Samuel. He fights. And he's not just fighting against David. He's fighting against the word of God. Genesis 49, 1 Samuel 15. We don't know from this text what Abner's decision will be, but it's very interesting. Mark it. Follow Abner through the story. At first, he sides with Saul and with Benjamin. He fights. There comes a time where he flips, and he says, okay, (laughs) David, I can't beat you, so I'm with you. That's for a later sermon. Now, we we have to tidy this up a little bit, though. We're not done. Our work's not done. Uh, What does it mean, though, that Jonathan loved David? We have to address that. And I've sort of addressed it, but not totally. We're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. Well, first of all, we cannot understand verse 1 without seeing verse 2. These two verses, as I said, create a contrast between father and son. So so the first thing that it means that he knit himself to, to David is he's saying, I am going to pin my future and my success to your success. If it goes well for you, it will go well for me. If it doesn't go well for you, it won't go well for me. That's what it means to knit. Their, their destinies now are tied together. The rise of Jonathan will mean the rise of David. And vice versa. The rise of David will mean the rise of Jonathan. Uh, secondly, though, it says because he loved him as his own soul. The word soul in Hebrew can also mean life. He loved David as he loved his own life. And I think we have to entertain the possibility that part of what Jonathan is saying is if I want to live because I love my life, I'm going to love David. Meaning, I'm going to acquiesce, I'm going to defer, I'm going to abdicate my position in the kingdom for him. Because I love my life, therefore I'm going to love David. Now, this begs the question, did Jonathan have warm feelings toward David? I think so. I think they had a really good friendship. There's nothing in the text that would make me see otherwise. This isn't a a begrudging sort of hate-filled, I just, I see what's happening and I have to do it. It seems as though the two men develop a very good friendship, that there is some warmth and brotherly affection between the two as they develop. And and so without denying that at all, and I think there's much application that we can derive from their friendship together. Uh, I want us to focus, however, on the political side of what's going on. So, so look to Jonathan and David and see the way in which they, they go about their friendship and model that in your own lives. Be that kind of friend. But now let's get to the deeper, more political aspect to this. In order to do so, we have to remember the context of what's going on here. This is a political scene. This is at the height of confrontation between the house of uh, Saul and the house of David, the the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And it's laced with honor and shame. So warm brotherly affection may play a role in Jonathan's relationship with David, but more than that, Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1 signifies Jonathan's crossing of the proverbial line in the sand to stand with David instead of Saul, his own father. And thus he forfeits in that moment his own succession to the throne of Israel. Now, can we prove this? I believe we can. Uh, Jonathan communicates his love to David in a series of covenants. He cuts covenants with David. Let's take a look at the first one in verse 3. 
Then, so this looks like it's right away, line in the sand, Jonathan knits himself to David, hitches his wagon, so to speak, to David. Then immediately he makes a covenant with David. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. That's the second time we've heard that. And as I said, I think uh, the deepest understanding of that, he loved his own life. And so in order to keep his life, he cuts a covenant with David and gives him the kingdom. Is there more that we can learn about this covenant? Yes, there is. And I'm going to do something that, I don't know, uh, it's nice to read the Bible in order because this is what's called delayed exposition. We learn out more about what's going on as the story unfolds. But let me just hopscotch through 1 Samuel for you in order to see exactly what's going on here with absolute clarity. What is the essence of this covenant between David and Jonathan? Uh, Flip over to chapter 20, verses 8 to 17. Remember, the co- well, you maybe don't know this if you haven't read it, but Saul's trying to kill David. And Jonathan, because he has made a covenant in chapter 18 with David, saying, I'm going to promote you at all costs, Jonathan seeks to protect David from Saul's wrath. And there, as they're talking about this, David says to Jonathan, deal kindly with your servants. This is David to Jonathan. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David is reminding Jonathan, just in case you decide to go back and switch sides, double back and be with your father again, remember, you made a covenant, not just with me, but of the Lord. The Lord be witness of what you promised to me. Okay? If there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? Look at what Jonathan says in verse 9. Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? That is, who will let me know that your dad really wants to kill me? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. Uh, Verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, Jonathan speaking, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if it is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But shall it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now look at verse 14. If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. John is saying, because I've sided with you, my dad might kill me. But when you come back, if I'm still alive, please don't you kill me. Because I'm taking a great risk for you and your kingdom. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. For when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth... So Jonathan is saying, don't, don't kill me and don't kill my house when, you, uh, when all your enemies are cut off. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So you see this cutting of covenants and it's all about Jonathan protecting David and David promising not to kill Jonathan or Jonathan's house we see this again just four verses in chapter 23 verses 15 to 18 David is still on the run from Saul David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life so Saul was in fact trying to kill him David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horash and Jonathan Saul's son rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God and he said to him do not fear for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you Saul my father also knows this and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. And here we see it with absolute clarity. What is the covenant that they made in chapter 18? Jonathan will protect David until he becomes king. David promises when he becomes king, when he's killing all of the house of Saul and all of his enemies, he will not kill Jonathan. He will not kill Jonathan's family. 
the last part of this covenant is, in fact, I will promote you and your house to be second in the kingdom. That's the covenant. That's the foundation of David's relationship with Jonathan and Jonathan's relationship with David. And Jonathan, to close our time, proves his commitment to this covenant in chapter 18, verse 4, with a very significant, very public sign act. Take a look at verse 4. Remember, this is in the context of making the covenant that we've just explored. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. This is very significant because if Saul's armor was recognizable to all of the the people of Israel, then so is true of the armor and the robe of the crown prince. And so what Jonathan is declaring, not in private to David, he's not making a private covenant with David that I'm for you and for your kingdom. I'm abdicating my position. I will not take over as king after my father. In fact, I promote you over my father. That's not done in private. It's done in public. He says, here's the robe of the crown prince. Put it on. Here's the armor of the crown prince. Put it on. And when you go out before all of the people, when when you go out into battle, everyone will see you're wearing the armor of the next in command. You are the king in waiting. I declare it to be so. When you march into any Israelite town at the head of the army and people see you, they'll say, is that Jonathan? And the answer will be, no, it's David. Oh, he's the crown prince. He's the king in waiting is very significant it's also significant that David puts it on because he wouldn't put on Saul's armor and as we go through the narrative we're going to see that David will not raise his hand to strike Saul dead but he will publicly shame Saul and he will prance around the kingdom and go in and out of battle wearing the armor of the king in waiting making a claim saying Saul has no dynasty What was Saul's reaction to all of this? Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is very subtle, easy to miss, but what's happening here? David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Before this, it would have been Jonathan. Jonathan went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Jonathan had been at the head. But now, David, wearing Jonathan's clothes, is sent out and is successful wherever Saul sent him. You see, Jonathan with David in this this stretch of the, the narrative has put Saul in a corner. Saul was eclipsed by David when David killed Goliath. And now Saul is eclipsed even further in his dynastic house because his own son has crossed the line and joined David. And so Saul's in a corner. He says, okay, well, you're the crown prince. You can act like the crown prince. We're going to see that that's not all to the story. What does this text require of us? Is this just a glimpse of into a royal struggle that happened on the other side of the world in a culture far different than ours 3,000 years ago? Is it worth our time to seriously study the Bible like this? Is there more than just sort of the, the enjoyment of a good story, a good history lesson? Is there more going on here than just the political posturing of David, Saul, Jonathan, and Abner? Yes, there is. Because what we learn today in this hearing is that for the first 
time in the scriptures, the word of God as recorded in Genesis 49 is being fulfilled. David is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We, we love to talk about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is. But before Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, David is. David fulfills the prophecy. The wolf had killed the prey in the morning, but by the evening the lion had roused himself, taken the prey, taken the kingdom. Now who dares rouse the lion and take the kingdom from him? David is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Saul and Jonathan are the wolves of the tribe of Benjamin. However, David as the lion of the tribe of Judah is only the beginning. David is the first in a long line of kings that will assume the role of lion of the tribe of Judah. Climactically, and ultimately, this ancient title is passed down generation after generation from king to king all the th way through the ages, even as they go into exile into Babylon and come out and restore the kingdom. Generation after generation after generation until it lands on a man by the name of Joseph of Nazareth. Joseph of Nazareth is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he passes that prophetic title by adoption onto his son, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of God, who becomes the ultimate fulfillment of an ancient prophecy given by the Holy Spirit through Jacob to Judah that the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. And counterintuitively, this lion, the Lord Jesus Christ, exercises his royal authority by becoming a lamb. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. That's not how I thought this was going to unfold. But the lion is a lamb, and the lamb is a lion. And this lamb, by crucifixion, stands before the world with the head of Satan in his hands. And he draws a line in the sand, and he says, you are either with me over here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, or you are over there with every other pretended king who, whether they have read the Scriptures or not, have taken something that doesn't belong to them because I am the king and I have purchased you a kingdom with my own blood. Who will cross over the line? Will you stand with Saul and every other failed king? Will you get off the throne of your own life? Stop trying to be your own king or queen, your own boss. Will you recognize that you are not king of yourself, that you have been bought with a price and you are someone else's servant? Will you do what Jonathan did? And take off your crown. Take off your robe. Take off your armor. And throw it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Because you love your life. And his rise is your rise. And his fall is your fall. He died. He fell. And he rose again. And we either die with him so we can rise with him or we stay over here on our own thrones. But when the lion comes, when the lion comes back, he came the first time as a lamb, but when he comes back, he's coming back as a lion. And will you try to take the kingdom from him? 
I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll and written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, not in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. The lamb was standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. There's a line in the sand. And the lion of the tribe of Judah bids us come. Throw your crown at his feet. Get off your throne. Be like Jonathan. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of David. You sit on his throne. You have the head of Satan in your hands. There are a lot of false kings and queens. But we're with you. We knit ourselves to you. Because we love you as we love our own soul. In your name we pray. Amen.